Welcome to This Osteopathic Life. This is Dr. Amelia Beakey. I'm honored to share with you the philosophy that has underscored my personal and professional life and explore how osteopathy truly is for the health of all things. I see these principles in action every day in my varied roles as physician, parent, athlete, writer, musician, coach, and entrepreneur, and hope they will light the way for the path to your best health. Please note that while I am a physician, this podcast is intended to share general information and encourage discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked materials is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. Thank you for joining me for episode 10 of season 1 of This Osteopathic Life. Today, I'll be discussing undocumented treatments. This is a topic that's come up over and over again in my study of osteopathy, in my teaching of osteopathy, in my understanding of osteopathy. And as a resident, as we moved through the writings, the books of Dr. Andrew Taylor Still, the founder of osteopathy, there were often complaints and concerns and questions as to why he wasn't more specific about the techniques he used for osteopathic manipulative treatment. And there were varying opinions on this. Um, They were still in development. He didn't have perhaps the language for them. But often it came up that they were intentionally vague and esoteric. And he was very clear that it was important to have a sound understanding of the anatomy and physiology and the normal and the abnormal and always holding the goal of restoring the normal through engagement with the structure of a person, of an organism of biology and physiology. And as we discuss this further and as I've explored it myself in my studies, it seems true that rather than getting caught up in the specifics of a technique, it was really on creating a sound and solid foundational knowledge base that would lead the way to the most success. And this was interesting for me because in residency, you have to be quite specific you know, about your findings. And when you take your board certification, there are very specific expectations um, about your treatment techniques and your findings and how you would address them. And that makes sense in some ways for standardization. If you have to pass a test and there has to be some objectivity for that, It makes sense to have a framework and some guidelines and principles. And like anything, uh, when you first learn, you need, again, those basics, the structural pieces. You need to learn the alphabet before you can read words, before you can put together sentences and paragraphs and poetry and novels. And so you need skills and understanding of anatomy and palpation and basic treatment principles. You know, we talk about both direct and indirect treatments, meaning if direct treatment, you take it where it doesn't want to go. If something is rotated right, you rotate it left. And indirect treatments, you go into the ease, you go where that dysfunctional area likes to be and wait and hold for rebalancing and make a shift that way. So there are certainly merits to having foundational knowledge and even basic techniques, especially in the early phases. But like anything, as we talked about the expansion of where words can go, 
once you gain skill and knowledge and awareness with osteopathic treatment, there's also room for growth as you gain a deeper sense of awareness of anatomy and physiology and you build on these basic skills of treatment, you recognize that it's not about the technique, it's about the knowledge. And it's about the engagement in that moment between you and the patient and all the forces that are present in their system. And you begin to realize how limiting some basic techniques can be in that case. Because if you simply apply them foundationally and kind of rote um, application of them, you miss out. You miss out on the nuance in the power of individualization and seeing the patient in the moment for who they are and for what they're bringing and recognizing what you're bringing and the evolution of your knowledge and your you know, palpatory skills and your capacity to apply treatment on a deeper level with a greater sense of awareness of self and of the patient. And it's really powerful. And it was a bit of an aha moment for me a couple times. And the first came with a resident I was working with. And to me, in our discussions and in observing him treat patients, you know, seeing the patient before he would treat them and after and seeing tremendous results you know, improvements in balance in their system and the patients would report feeling better. And um, he often felt like he wasn't getting it. You know, he would relate to us that he would hear what we were saying. We would describe our findings as the preceptors or the attending physicians and, you know, give our feedback on our assessment. But when we would describe it, it wouldn't match what he was feeling. And in some ways that felt like a failure. You know, if he didn't feel what we felt, it was wrong or it was bad or he wasn't adequately engaging with the patient. And it was challenging for me because my assessment of the situation was that he was very much getting it and he was having great results. Um, But perhaps we weren't speaking the same language. And it came from this resident years later in the recommendation of a book by Alan Watts called The Wisdom of Insecurity. And as I read it, it kind of clicked for me that perhaps he wasn't feeling what I was feeling because maybe it changed by the time he was, you know, engaging with the patient or his interpretation of it, you know, was different than mine. He had different words to describe it. And I'm going to use a few quotes throughout the course of this podcast. And I encourage you to look up this book and Alan Watts' books are all quite interesting and certainly food for thought and consideration. Uh, But one from the wisdom of insecurity is this. But you cannot understand life and its mysteries as long as you try to grasp it. Indeed, you cannot grasp it, just as you cannot walk off with a river in a bucket. If you try to capture running water in a bucket, it is clear that you do not understand it and that you will always be disappointed, for in the bucket, the water does not run. To have running water, you must let go of it. And let it run. And this is just one quote from the book, and actually maybe not the first one I considered, but as I was going back through, this one jumped out at me. And we talk a lot about the fluidity and the river of life and the tide in patients. There's a lot of talk, you know, concepts of moving water. And I love this one for that reason, and also for that sense of trying to fix and form and categorize um, what we experience in osteopathic assessment and treatment. 
And I want to be very clear here. You know, I'm not suggesting that this isn't scientific. You know, it's firmly based in anatomy and physiology and pathophysiology and the nervous system and lymphatics. You know, there are very scientific bases uh, for osteopathic medicine, evaluation and treatment. At the same time, the reason it exists was to challenge, again, the normal and where straight science fell short, you know, where it was so fixed in these systems and data, you know, even in that time um, of the Civil War when osteopathy came to be, that it missed out on some of those individual nuances that mattered, you know, that had a strong influence on the outcomes for the patient in the means by which the physician could engage with them to have a positive impact. And this was so huge for me, considering the experience with this resident saying, yes, this is what was happening. Um, And it helped him in that same way. You know, it wasn't that any of us were right or wrong in our assessment. We might have had different words, or there's so much fluidity to what's happening. By the time one person puts their hands on a patient, makes an assessment, explains their assessment, and the next person goes to evaluate for themselves, it might have shifted. Or they might just experience it in a different way because of who they are or where they are. And that can be as opportunistic as it can be overwhelming and challenging, you know, because with the scientific aspect of medicine, we like data and we like straight answers. You know, we're expected to have A, B, C, or D as the right answer And sometimes it doesn't fit into that box. And that can be frustrating and it can be hard, you know, to prove and put straight data behind. And it's important to seek some meaningful objective measures, you know, as we go forth and explain and, you know, justify ourselves in the medical community. But it can also be a huge gift, especially, you know, for patients who feel like they've done all of those things. They've gotten all the labs and the tests and it's not explaining what's quote unquote wrong with them, why they don't feel the full health they know they could express. And it allows for some nuance. And I think we have opportunity to treat that as the gift that it is. And I put this to the test myself when I was invited to lecture at OMED, a national conference, and it was about student athletes and using OMT to address some common injuries. And so I gave a pretty straightforward basic lecture looking at some anatomy, some common injuries that happen for young athletes. And then we came to the treatment portion and it was a workshop. So it's a breakout hands-on session. And I had table trainers with me, my colleagues who are well-versed in osteopathic manipulative treatment. And I pulled up the first example, which was wrist pain, and you know covered some of the anatomy that could commonly be injured, and then presented to this group, uh, which was composed of pediatric physicians, as well as specialists in neuromusculoskeletal medicine, but perhaps more in the pediatric realm, and posed to them, what would you do? How would you assess and treat wrist pain in a young athlete? And I didn't give them a framework. I didn't give them a treatment technique. I didn't give them much direction at all other than think about what anatomy might be influenced and think about what you would do to help take that deranged anatomy and physiology and return it to normal. And to be honest, everybody kind of freaked out during that first breakout session. 
um, the director who invited me to that course also, you know, kind of came up and said, are you not going to give them a technique? And I said, no, we're going to wait and see what happens. And so we all walked around the table trainers and, you know, gave them some prompts, you know, here's a way you would palpate. Here's how you might hold the wrist. Think back to your time in osteopathic manipulative medicine lab in medical school you know, did you ever engage with the upper extremity there? Or what techniques do you remember? Could you apply those, you know, to the wrist? Maybe you learned them for the back and you remember those. What principles could you apply to the wrist? And they started to play around with it. You know, they took each other's hands and, you know, tried some treatments and gave each other feedback. And you could slowly start to see these kind of lights turn on. Oh, I do remember this. You know, we use this compression technique. Oh, we learned it with traction. You know, some of these folks were classmates, some came from different schools, so they brought different tools and philosophies and treatment styles to each other, and so they began to practice. And then we moved on, and we looked at, you know, pain in the lower extremity, injury to the lower extremity, and they got a little more creative that time. You know, they, they knew they weren't going to be spoon-fed techniques, and so they took it upon themselves and started, you know, that process, and they had the resources of the table trainers in the room, you know, to give feedback and, you know, give some suggestions, but they started to remember, you know, and then they weren't beholden to following a protocol and, you know, getting stuck if they knew there were 10 steps and they couldn't remember steps six and seven, maybe they wouldn't try anything at all. But if they had some basic principles, you know, they understand the anatomy of the wrist or of the knee, and they could think about some common injuries that might happen for an athlete and what damage or restrictions that might cause in those joints and then they could think what are some mechanical ways I could help return that to normal bring better balance to the system take away some of the stress and they were empowered you know they were able to take away from that a sense of capability and it wasn't because this person just taught me something new and I think I can remember that it's oh yeah I was taught that you know five or ten or twenty years ago and it's still there. You know, that knowledge base is still there and the familiarity is still there. And I'm a competent physician. And if I can think about this anatomy, you know, with those cadavers I dissected back in medical school and remember some of those basic techniques I learned and begin to apply those principles in a way that applies to this patient in front of me right now, I have a greater chance of success. You know, recipes are great. But if you don't have the recipe in front of you and you're not confident in remembering the quantities, you're probably not going to bake the cake. You know, you might seek another recipe or you might, you know, just not have one for that day. But if it's a basic concept, you know, putting together a fruit salad where you have an idea that I want to combine these different flavors, you can do that. Um, you're more likely to follow through. And to be clear, I'm not simplifying osteopathic manipulative treatment down to the composition of a bowl of melon and grapes. I'm just trying to liken it to the freedom of having basic principles that can be guidelines, but aren't so stringent that if you don't follow them to a T, you're going to mess it up or that you won't even try. I think within this, it's also really helpful to consider those personal perceptions and styles and treatment are very different person to person. And I found that in my training, you know, I went to a very biomechanical school and I didn't perceive or engage with the system very biomechanically. 
um, and I understood the biomechanics and the anatomy and the physiology, but I felt things in a more kind of fluid level, and that's how I would engage with treatment. And again, initially I thought, maybe this is wrong. You know, I, I don't necessarily apply the treatment in the way that my uh, initial trainers were. And then once I met others who, on the path um, and how they treated, I could see, okay, there are different ways to do this. You know, we're all operating from the same base understanding, scientific knowledge, philosophy, but there's room for some creativity, some nuance in the application of treatment. I think it's also important to note the layers that are involved and the constant changing that's happening, um, especially with patients. You know, when we see them, we see them in that moment where they are at that time with all the stressors and successes of that week and that month and that time in their lives. And treatment might be very different, you know, one month or year to the next based on where they are and what life experiences and exposures they've had. And being free to kind of move between treatment styles. And even in that moment, you might be applying treatment um, to an area of dysfunction in someone's body and you get feedback right then and there, this isn't working. And being able to draw on that and adjust and adapt. Um, and it might not be abandoning that whole treatment style, but just shifting a bit within it. So I think that freedom is there. And I do think this was a gift from Dr. Still in a lot of ways, um, encouraging us again to operate from a strong knowledge base, but recognize that it was up to us to continue to evolve our knowledge and skill application and I think, too, in you know, assessing his own lifetime and the evolutions in medicine, he likely anticipated if it changed this much in my lifetime, it's probably going to change a whole lot you know, going forward. And what limitation would there be on writing down specifics? You know, would it fix that dogma, that paradigm in a way that didn't allow for growth and evolution? And a couple quotes here that I think support that. These are from A.T. Still. Remember, none but a thoroughly skilled hand with a cultivated touch guided by an educated brain should deal with the delicate structure of the human body. And so it's mandating that we be highly trained and skilled and experienced in learning uh, before we attempt to engage. Uh, so it's not that you know, anyone should try this at home, but it's acknowledging that you know, you've accepted this training as a physician and you have that experience and we should utilize that, you know, to the best success of our patients. Another that I found, which was new to me, actually, um, at least I hadn't remembered it in the upfront of my brain from A.T. Still, was this. My father was a progressive farmer and was always ready to lay aside an old plow if he could replace it with one better constructed for its work. All through life, I have ever been ready to buy a better plow. And I think, as I've said in previous episodes, that's the true challenge, you know, from Dr. Still to future generations of osteopaths is to continue to challenge what's available, to challenge the norm, to do better uh, than what exists, to do so from a grounded scientific place, but to recognize that our responsibility is really to improve upon what exists. Truly seeing the health through all of this is the goal, and that's a core foundational place from which all osteopaths ideally, hopefully, are operating. 
that whatever our language, whatever our experience, whatever our background, we are approaching the same ultimate goal of seeing and honoring the health in our patients, in ourselves, in the world, you know, however we can, far we can extrapolate out that concept. And on returning to Southern Oregon these past couple weeks and having my kids back in their beloved Waldorf school, I keep circling back um, to the Waldorf philosophies. And it has been for me that, you know, Waldorf education is a as close of a likeness to osteopathy in the education world as I've found. And one of the key phrases, and I can't find a direct quote, but this is often spoken of uh, when we have meetings and informational seminars, that in Waldorf, they're teaching children how to think, not what to know. And I think I can extrapolate that out to what we've been discussing today as well. You know, in osteopathy, there's a framework. You know, there's the knowledge base of anatomy and physiology, but ultimately, if we're considering that challenge to do better than the norm and continue to critically think about what's happening with and for patients, is that we're taught to be critical thinkers and not just what to know, but how to approach it and how to think of things. And still reflects that in this quote as well. And you'll, he uses men. It's the word of the times. I'm going to direct quote it here. You find that all men are successes or failures. Success is the stamp of truth. I will say all men who fail to place their feet on the dome of facts do so by not sieving all truth and throwing the faulty to one side. And so in that, I also hear and recognize all of this is my opinion and experience that there are truths, there are facts, but it's up to us again to critically assess them. And in modern day medicine, that often comes down to evidence-based medicine and journals and data and studies. And you know, you can oftentimes say whatever you'd like with a study and people will do so from their place of bias and from their place of personal or professional gain. And it's up to us as physicians to critically assess all information that's presented, you know, with a healthy dose of skepticism and, you know, a strong scientific base and discard the ones that prove not to be true, not to be, you know, actually founded and grounded. Um, They're so heavily biased that they're no longer useful or appropriate for implementation in the care of patients. And I think sometimes we are, you know, discarded or cast aside in osteopathy is not being scientific enough, but I think many of my colleagues are actually, you know, more skeptical and rightfully so of some of the data that's produced and really approach it um, with that lens of best patient care in mind, honoring the science, but looking for where those biases are. Now this one, I'm bouncing back and forth, and you can see some of the likenesses here is from Rudolf Steiner, who's the founder of Waldorf philosophy. Unlike anything, you can find you know, fault in it, and it's not necessarily for everyone, but it's for anyone. And I think we can draw on some of the core principles that are useful and that speak to the health. And from Steiner, he notes, 
that our highest endeavor must to be, be to develop free human beings who are able of themselves to impart purpose and direction to their lives. The need for imagination, a sense of truth, and a feeling of responsibility. These three forces are the very nerve of education. And I hope that's what my children are gaining from their experience. And that's what I hope to carry with me in my education, which is ongoing. It's lifelong. You know, I hope all physicians carry that spirit of lifelong learner with them. And that triad, you know, to me, speaks volumes. Need for imagination, sense of truth, and feeling of responsibility. You know, if we can filter our concepts, our learnings, our assessment of data, our engagement with the patients and our application of treatment through those three, I think there's so much we can gain and grow and provide um, within four patients through that. And so in our world of undocumented treatments, you know, what does that mean? How do we best utilize that? How do we go forward with that? And what does it mean when there are treatments written down? And like I said, there's a need for foundational information and jumping off points. And so if in reading a treatment technique textbook, uh, it gives you a baseline and a framework and a place from which to grow, I think that's great. You know, I think for students and for residents and for the needs of certifications, you know, we have some of those objective components. But I hope we don't get burden in them and bogged down by them in so much as we're less likely to apply them or less likely to evolve them, you know, to let ourselves implement a little bit of, you know, artistic license and creativity and develop them alongside with our growing knowledge of facts, you know, that we've vetted as clear truths um, and anatomy and physiology, but put our own personal experience in with it and learn from one patient to the next. This worked last time, this didn't. I'm willing to apply this and understand that if it doesn't work, you know, I'm not stuck. I can really kind of grow and evolve um, this application. And so I hope in the spirit of osteopathy and of Waldorf and of humanity at its best, that we'll all feel empowered to know how to think as well as what to know and to take our best selves and the awareness that the creativity and artistic license really can help us, you know, from that foundational place of data and science with the patient and level up the experience, you know, offer more than what perhaps basic science can provide. This is Dr. Amelia Beakey with This Osteopathic Life. Thank you for listening.